This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, and on Between the Lines this week, a new perspective on our origins as a species. Have we overlooked the role tropical forests played in our evolutionary story? But first to France and the sentencing of the terrorists behind the 2015 attacks in Paris. It was a night with no safe haven, when no one knew where to run. When gunmen brought chaos to Paris's bars and restaurants. It's football stadium. The Bataclan Concert Hall. According to the media in France, it's been the trial of the century. The judicial reckoning over the Paris attacks in 2015 that's just wrapped up took 10 months in all and they were unprecedented in scale and complexity. 20 defendants were sentenced for their roles in the deaths of 130 people. 90 of those were killed while attending a rock concert at the Bataclan Theatre. The journalist Madeleine Schwartz is based in Paris. She teaches journalism at Sciences Po, which is France's leading university in the social sciences, and wrote about the trial for the London Review of Books. Madeleine, let's start with the basics, if we can. Who was on trial? Yes, yeah, so one of the paradoxes of, of the trial is that because of the nature of the attacks, um, the people who were on trial were not necessarily uh, the people who had been in Paris on the day of the attacks, because uh, many of those attackers blew themselves up over the course of, of the attacks. There were 20 people on trial, six tried in absentia, and 14 who were in the courtroom, and their participation in the attacks really ranged um, from... Uh, you know, from having participated in the planning of the attacks and also in having um, done smaller activities that might have contributed to the attacks, like driving people to and from the airport. And there was one defendant, as I understand it, though, who was actually present throughout the Paris attacks. His name was Salah Abdeslam. Tell us about him. Yes, so Salah Abdeslam is probably uh, the most famous criminal in in France, and he is the only surviving member of the of the terrorists who attacked Paris on that day. And his participation in this trial was eagerly awaited. Um, unlike the other terrorists on that day, he did not blow himself up uh, during the attack. And one of the big questions of this trial was, why was that? With two warring theories, uh, one that his suicide vest was non-functional, and the other, which he proclaimed, which was that he decided not to, uh, at the last minute, out of, quote, humanity, close quote. The scale of the inquiry just is extraordinary. I think there were 1,800 plaintiffs, 330 lawyers, a purpose-built courtroom, a specially composed panel of judges. But the other unprecedented thing about this trial was the role of survivors and the time given to those survivors and the families of the dead within the proceedings themselves. Tell me about that. So, as you say, this was a huge trial and one of the largest trials in French history with about 2,000 um, civil parties, which is the legal term that one uses to describe victims of the uh, of the attacks. So some of these were people who had been uh, who had been hurt uh, on the day of the attacks, or people who lost friends uh, or family members. And over the course of a number of weeks, both at the beginning and at the end of the trial, they were offered the time to to really describe what they had experienced um, over the course of these attacks as well as afterwards. And it was incredibly moving to listen to these, these statements, people describing uh, losing limbs, having to uh, hide by covering themselves with dead bodies, um, as well as uh, horrible PTSD after the attacks and, and, and the loss uh, for many of of children, um, of friends, of, of relatives. How was the welfare of the survivors and families of victims of the attacks, as you described, managed by the court? I mean, presumably the risk of re revisiting the trauma of that day for those people must have been very high. 
Um, so there was a huge amount of care taken uh, for exactly that purpose, and um, it should be said that this trial, this trial took place in a in a closed courtroom where only people involved in the case and accredited journalists were allowed to attend. And in the space of the of the courtroom and the area directly outside of it, there were also um, a number of people whose job it was to to stand to stand by um, in case the, the victims needed uh, particular counseling or, or help. This amount of care for the victims ended up over the course of the, of the trial, proving a, a point that ended up being debated in the, in the trial itself with some people saying that, you know, the court was taking too much care for the victims and others saying, and that the trial should be focused really just on the strict legal matters and others saying um, that there was not enough. And do you know from any of your conversations with survivors or families of victims what their, I mean, I guess there wasn't one shared experience necessarily, but were, were many of them there seeking some kind of catharsis? Was it a cathartic experience for them or was it purely about this terrible thing has happened. This is how we manage this in France. Now we seek justice. Well, with with so many uh, with so many people, you know, it's hard to. There isn't necessarily one view. But even in their testimonies, a number of of victims um, expressed a good deal of of pride uh, in the fact that France had responded to these attacks with with a with a legal uh, trial. Um, with all of the accused given representation, um, as well as a certain amount of uh, a certain sense of closure that by testifying they were able to, or at least they hoped to be able to close a certain chapter in their life. So what was learned through all of this, you know, these thousands of pages of documents and evidence and testimony, all of these questions, all of these appearances, what did the experience of the trial teach those who were paying attention? The evidence and the the dossier, the um, you know, the report that was made before this this trial is is said to have reached one million pages, uh, which is, of course quite a number of, of pages and as the result of of about five years of of inquiry into what exactly happened. And so this trial was an attempt to showcase all that had been been learned. And that um you know ranged from trying to understand the planning of the attacks, how they were put together, as well as what exactly had happened on the day, um laying out a precise timeline. Um, and it also sought to um, to answer some larger questions about why these attacks had had happened. Do we know any more closely now why it was France that was attacked? Well, I think that that is a a question that there may never really be a, a satisfactory answer to. But but if one thing stood out um, over the course of of this trial is that this isn't as much as this particular attack um, affected France, this is not a purely French story. Um, the same uh, terrorist cell that attacked France uh, was also involved in attacks in, in Belgium uh, just a few months later in 2016. Um, and there is also some evidence that they had planned to attack other locations in Europe, uh, such as Schiphol Airport, uh, which is the airport for Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Do we have a sense now of how to frame the attacks? I understand that this was a an essential question that was discussed or a discourse within the courts. You know, what what provokes this kind of jihadi terrorism? There were some who saw it as an interpretation of religious te- teachings, an interpretation of Islam. The other drew on the idea that this is something that is shaped by sociological factors and best explained in that way. Yeah, so that was one of the central uh, questions, as you say, of this of this trial, and I don't know that we have a satisfactory answer um, to it. To it, and not all of the accused gave the same answer either. Broadly speaking, in the way that uh, French scholars 
tend to to interpret jihadi terrorism, there are two schools as you as you lay out. One that sees it as um, an interpretation of certain strains of Islam, and the other that sees it as a kind of reaction to certain sociological factors. And when asked to to speak about their motivation, the accused on trial really gave um, a range of of explanations. Um, you know, of course, many of them said that they, even if they admitted to having done certain specific actions, that they did not do so with the intent um, of of creating these attacks, and they had no idea what their what the other people uh, were planning, and they might have been asked to participate without understanding what exactly was was happening. And that was something that a number of accused said. Um, and for those who who admitted to having known um, or to having known some part of what was being happened, they gave a, a range of explanations. So uh, one accused described this as a as a political, a politically motivated act, um, and saw this kind of terrorism as part of a larger fight, a larger political fight against um, unjust Western involvement in the Middle East. And Salah Abdeslam, uh, who who you mentioned before, is one of the main uh, was what was sort of the main accused. His own explanations really varied throughout throughout the trial. Um, sometimes he described himself as essentially a soldier of God and uh, talked about being a hardened jihadist. And sometimes he would apologize to the victims and say that he never even wanted to be a part of all of this to begin with. Must have been immensely frustrating, not only for the for the lawyers and the and the panel of judges, but also for, you know, the survivors and family members who were there to hear these shifting, kind of the shifting sands of these answers. That that yeah, having waited all this time to get at some kind of truth, that the truth was still hiding throughout. Um, well, if the trial had a, an advantage in terms of its length, I think it was in highlighting the, com- the complexity of these questions and that there isn't necessarily a one one answer. And I think many of the people who were who part who listened to the to the trial um, appreciated being able to to hear such a variety of of answers. But it's true that coming out of it, one can't say definitively. There are a number of questions that one can't answer definitively. I, mean, I think you wrote that much is still unknown and unresolved, which feel, it felt to ring very true, having having read through some of the uh, some of the findings. But let's taking a step back. I mean, how has that day, November the thirteenth, shaped French politics since twenty fifteen? Did it did it change life in France? I'm not talking here about those who were directly affected, of course, the survivors, the bereaved, but generally speaking, has it changed the way France thinks of itself? Um, it has had a a, a very large um, influence on on French French life and French politics, especially, um, and you can see that in a few different ways. Legally, uh, France has been in essentially a semi permanent state of emergency. Uh, since the attacks, with uh, certain measures that were originally emergency measures um, that were put forth right after the attacks and that were made into law in in 2017, as well as uh, there was a large law that was one of President Macron's signature laws um, from last summer, uh, which aims to uh, to fight against uh, what the you know, essentially Islamic separatism by changing uh, a number of rules about how associations can function and and that sort of thing, and to to according to the law promote Republican values. Politically, Islam um, and Islamic terrorism um, has taken a huge central role in in French political life um, and has become. One, if not the the conversation that animates um, elections, uh, even as many French people in in polls are much more interested in other questions like economic questions, and this was certainly on view um, in in the most recent elections that France had in a presidential election in April and a legislative election this past June, uh, where the the far right party, uh, the National Rally made very large gains in France. 
What stays with you most, Madeline, from, from the time that you spent in court? I'm guessing some of that witness testimony, you know, what was said of the impacts on some of the individuals involved or who'd, who'd survived must have been powerful. Well, certainly the, the witness testimony was incredibly powerful and there are certain stories that I heard that I, well, I, that I don't think I will... I will ever forget. I think what what really stays with me is, in fact, some of the moments that happened not in in the court um, itself, but in uh, during the breaks. And uh, of course, it it may be worth mentioning that the French are are hardened smokers. And during the break, you would have these moments where all of the everyone who had been at court. So these are victims, uh, lawyers, as well as certain. Uh, certain ones of certain members of the accused who who were able to to move freely would all go out to the steps of the uh, Palais de Justice, which is a, a very large formal building right at the center of Paris, and smoke together and and talk. And that was an experience that I don't think I'll see replicated anytime soon. Yeah, that's an extraordinary picture you paint. Can I ask to, I mean, we, we should just establish what the outcome of all of this was. Everyone was found guilty, weren't they? Um, so 19 of the 20 accused were found guilty of participating um, in a terrorist activity. Uh, one other accused was particip- was um, found guilty of some other ancillary crimes. Um, and their penalties will really Range the the large the the biggest penalty uh, was was for Salah Abdeslam who was was found guilty um, and will now face life in prison, which is a very rare punishment in uh, in the French legal system. Uh, he's one of only a handful of of accused in in French history to to face that particular sentence. Madeleine Schwartz, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. That's the journalist Madeleine Schwartz, based in Paris. She wrote about the trial, the Bataclan trial, as it became known in France, for the London Review of Books. She's a, she teaches journalism at Sciences Po uh, in Paris. Charles Darwin. Most scholars have avoided tropical forests and focused instead on dry savannas as the key to early human evolution. But perhaps jungles have played a far more prominent role than has been previously thought. In a moment, archaeological scientist Patrick Roberts offers a challenge to the savannah thesis. The story of early humans' long journey out of Africa tells us our distant ancestors moved and spread through the world by following and sticking to paths or corridors of open grasslands and savannas. It's known as the savannah hypothesis. But archaeological scientist Patrick Roberts brings a different perspective to that story of how dispersal occurred. He raises the idea that tropical forests or jungles were places that early humans chose to live and evolve in rather than avoiding. So Patrick is currently independent research group leader at the prestigious Max Planck Institute for Geoanthropology. He's also the author of Jungle, How Tropical Forests Shape the World and Us, which is published by Basic Books. Patrick, thanks for joining us from Jena in Germany. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Now, Patrick, as you describe it, centuries of science may have missed a basic truth, that tropical forests could have been a cradle of human evolution in a way that's not recognised. So, so how could that misconception have developed? So I think it's it's not necessarily wanting to, to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, as it, it were. I mean, I think savannah expansion was certainly important to our evolution. But basically, since Charles Darwin, since Lamarck, there's been this idea that 
we evolved by leaving behind the forest that kind of our closest great ape relatives, they stayed in the forest and they had their own pathways to evolution. Whereas our pathway to kind of becoming hominins and then later our species was linked to this, these more open uh, environments. And I think part of the, the work that I'm doing and lots of colleagues are doing is showing that perhaps that story is just a bit too simple, um, that actually a lot of the early developments occurred while still within tropical forest settings um, and that tropical forests remained incredibly important to two different hominins, to humans, um, both within and beyond Africa as well. Is it possible that kind of early scientists and archaeologists might have been influenced by their cultural notions of, of a jungle and, and these kind of strong colonial undertones about that place, that it's not a place where civilising humans would have chosen to evolve? Yeah, I think almost certainly that 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 um, contributed. You know, in in a lot of the literature we see, a lot of the films we watch, we still see kind of tropical forests as this sort of intimidating backdrop, uh, whether it's for a horror film or some kind of a adventure film. Um, and you know, sort of long term human occupation doesn't seem particularly attractive in in these settings, at least to our kind of um, Western stereotypes and, and ideas. Um, so that's certainly one element of it. I mean, another element is simply also for, for archaeologists, it's 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 very difficult to um, often work in these settings. And so it can be challenging to find um, sites and undertake lots of archaeological work that we can do in other places. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of archaeology traditionally due to uh, its, its history as a discipline has been done in, in, in parts of the world that are perhaps more temperate or a little bit more arid. Um, and so the tropical regions have, have perhaps seen less less um, work, um, both for kind of stereotypical reasons as well as some practical reasons as well. I mean, they're not easy places to work, are they? I mean, they, 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 t- tell us a little bit about about the kinds of field trips and on-site research that you've done, the mosquitoes, the leeches. It's, it can't <laughs> be easy. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, in, in Sri Lanka, you know, you're walking through a rainforest and the leeches are smart enough to feel your vibrations and drop onto you from above. So it's quite of an interesting um, experience. Um, and so, you know, there, there are challenging elements. You know, I, I have colleagues elsewhere that, that take, you know, it takes hours just to get to their field site, if not days, um, right? So you can just imagine that it's it's just not quite the same of, of, as doing archaeology in, in some other parts um, of the world. But, but then, you know, this is, again, a lot of, in some cases, these are our, our Western sensibilities that make this feel very challenging and very difficult. Um, but actually, people, indigenous populations that live there um, are very well at home in, in tropical forest environments. They know exactly how to use them and how to how to live comfortably there. Um, and so it's, 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 again, I suppose, a matter of, of, of perspective. Now, you mentioned Sri Lanka there. Tell us about your thesis and, and fieldwork in that country. What, what were you investigating and what were you hoping to find? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to do my my PhD work um, looking at uh, the earliest human um, adaptations or arrivals into into Sri Lanka. This is an island just off the southern tip of India in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And today it's kind of characterised by a very diverse environment running from all the way from tropical rainforest into kind of more open tropical grasslands. Um, And what was fascinating about Sri Lanka is that since the 1980s, Sri Lankan researchers have been been pointing out, well, actually the earliest human sites um, are found in in what is today tropical rainforest. Um, And this was quite surprising um, to people that had followed this kind of uh, either the Indian Ocean Rim hypothesis, which is the idea that our species advanced very rapidly to Australia around the coast, that, that it was using lots of protein-rich coastal resources, or as, as you also mentioned, you know, this idea that, that we needed grasslands to expand um, through different parts of the world. And so Sri Lanka seemed to be a bit of a an odd one out. Um, but because it's an island, people argued, oh, well, maybe, you know, um, maybe humans were moving around and they used rainforest for just part of the year. Uh, or maybe, you know, there actually wasn't forest there in the past. Um, and so for my PhD, I applied this, this method, stable isotope analysis, stable carbon isotope analysis to animal and, and human teeth. Um, and this method actually allows us to look at different dietary practices. Um, basically, carbon isotopes um, are different atoms of carbon. One is a slightly heavier isotope, one is a lighter isotope. And this means that they react differently uh, in physical and chemical reactions. And the most important one being here is photosynthesis. Um, and so plants that grow in tropical forests end up having different carbon isotope um, values than, than um, plants growing in more open areas. And so we could use this distinction to then, okay, well, let's test the humans. What do they look like? Um, and let's test the animals from the past. And do they show that forest was there in the present, uh, in the in the past as well? 
And we did indeed find, we found that that sort of the earliest samples we had, which are about from about 38 to 36,000 years ago, um, that there was rainforest there in the past, although there was also some more open um, environments. But the, the human sample we had was very much sitting in the in the forest kind of area. And so we had this record where actually the earliest human was not only in, in Sri Lanka, was, was not only um, using tropical forests, it was sort of choosing to, um, because there were other habitats available. And so this was pretty amazing and, and kind of started to, to to change some perspectives on on how important these environments were um, for the earliest humans moving in uh, into different parts of Asia. Did it feel a, a kind of weighty discovery to you, Patrick? It's, it is a controversial question to be asking, I guess, when generations of scholars had supported the idea that, uh, you know, this was the early hominids, it, it was all about grasslands and savannas for them. Yeah, I, th- I think on 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 the one hand, yeah, there was clearly a need to to start to to show these things. But on the other hand, I guess no, because there had been this legacy of Sri Lankan researchers that had actually been pointing this out, and and just perhaps their work wasn't necessarily being recognised in the international community. So I guess in in a way, it's a little bit sad that it that it that it took some you know scientific methodology for that for that to, to happen. But but fortunately, these Sri Lankan researchers are are now in, you know incredibly well known, and they've rightly got the the credit they they deserve for for. Um, you know the these ideas, and and I think also in the broader broader sphere, there had been people working in in tropical forests elsewhere. So there was the famous near caves in Borneo. There'd been a team um, of international researchers working there um, that had already started to show that that humans were practicing very specialized adaptations to tropical rainforest in that part of the world. Um, and so there was this work sort of starting to go on in other places as well. And so it it was very interesting at the time because we we wrote a review paper on just this idea of, of you know, uh, our tropical forest key to human evolution. And then, you know, I think we had five reviewers and, and sort of one said, of course, you know, they, this paper doesn't need to be written because we know this. And then the other four were like, well, no, you know, the, we don't think this is true or, you know, so I think it does polarize opinion sometimes and people that work in different parts of the world will have very different um, perspectives on this question. So I think it, yeah, a bit, a bit of yes and a bit of no. I'm Kylie Morris on ABC RN. This is Between the Lines. And my guest is Patrick Roberts, an archaeologist and anthropologist from the Max Planck Institute and author of Jungle, How Tropical Forests Shape the World and Us. Patrick, can we talk a little more about the Savannah hypothesis? I guess part of the reason why it might have been difficult for people to accept other ideas is that the the that Savannah hypothesis has proven to be so persuasive. What is so persuasive about that? Why has that felt like a, a logical story to so many people? people. Yeah, I mean, I think because, you know, going back to the first hominins in, in Africa about 7 million years ago or so, I mean, they are emerging at a time when either just after or or around the same time where gra- tropical grasslands are expanding in eastern and southern Africa. Um, and certainly then, you know, as we start to see increasingly biped- specialized bipedalism, uh, uh, kind of upright walking, um, tool use. Um, this does, you know, and a lot of the fossils that appear, um, they do all seem to be coming from what are today at least open arid um, environments. And so I think it's been persuasive in sort of further stimulating that that narrative, that idea um, that we kind of left the trees and started striding out into these open settings. Um, and then our species, I guess, has sort of been seen as sort of the end of a long line of these hominins. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, I think that there certainly are elements that, that this, this expansion of grassland is playing an important role um, in hominin evolution. Um, but for example, we now know that, that that bipedalism probably evolved multiple times. And so, for example, among the great apes today, the actual great ape that practices bipedalism the most, uh, apart from ourselves, uh, is in fact orangutans. And they do it high up in the canopy. It's not actually chimpanzees, as we might uh, assume. Um, and so I think this shows you that, that bipedalism doesn't have to be linked to open grassland uh, or walking on the floor, that actually bipedalism can develop in, in the treetops itself. And I think this is provided a bit of a different perspective on how variable those early stages of hominin evolution might be, that there certainly wasn't this great march uh, onto the savannah and, and that probably forests continued to play a very important role um, as well. Would it also mean that if, if you're kind of testing the, the jungle theory or the tropical forest theory, that you should be able to look for signifiers in kind of skeletal signifiers of that environment 
in hominids. So evidence that, for example, we were very good climbers with strong hands in the same way as bipedalism is kind of the the increase in height of people is seen in part as being indicative of, of that and their being upright. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is this is what's been often used um, to look at hominin evolution and, and uh, exactly that. How, how does hip morphology, leg morphology, hand and arm morphology change through time? And what does this suggest about our locomotion. Um, and yes, classic examples, you know, I'm sure your listeners probably heard of maybe Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, who's this famous um, hominin fossil that, that's by some taken as uh, as being a, a prime example of, of some early bipedalism among hominins. But but even she, she's she's got evidence in her arms, in her hands that, that showed that she would have also been very adept at, at climbing. Um, and actually, these features continue right down to the emergence of our own genus, Homo, that, that even once Homo is emerging in Africa, that, that some of these um, hominins are still maintaining very clear evidence that they, they would have still been good climbers. Um, and the same sort of goes for stone tools, that actually we see a lot of the sites where there were early stone tools, that there would have actually been woodland uh, or trees nearby. And so it, it does seem that tropical forest, tropical woodland did continue to pay, play an important role, maybe as a form of shelter, form of resources for, for hominins uh, through time, even as savannas were expanding as well. And there's a question about that timing, isn't there? I mean, as I understand it, one of the challenges to the Savannah thesis is you know, for the theory to, to work, then the landscapes would have needed to expand, the grassland landscapes would have needed to expand roughly at the same time that we can start to notice these physiological changes. However, you're sort of saying, look, the, the, the timing's a bit off in, in some evidence that, that we've found and that actually that, that it's not as watertight as we imagined. Yeah, so so some researchers actually, I think, uh, back in in um, nearly ten years ago now, actually had had actually shown that there was already grassland expansion in in Africa um, by about eleven million years ago, uh, and so this is happening obviously before the first hominins appear, um, and actually probably based on our current evidence with a lag of about four million years, um, and so this kind of neat idea that grassland expanded at exactly the same time that the first hominins appeared is not quite. Correct. I mean, there there are certainly still, you know, some dynamics of, of grassland expansion going on on a global scale. But but yes, there doesn't seem to be quite that neat link that there there once was. And I think we have to look um, increasingly more about how it was probably variable conditions that really um, played a major role in the in the emergence uh, of hominins and then obviously their their continued evolution as well. And your research seems to add another kind of um, layer of kind of graying evidence, doesn't it? This isn't purely a kind of black and white situation. Your argument isn't necessarily only that open savannas didn't play a major part in the evolution of humans, but that maybe the tropical forest experience, part of that hasn't been fully appreciated or acknowledged. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's it. We see by the end of the Pleistocene, what's key is, you know, we see humans in in, in tropical forests on, on basically every every tropical continent um, and in slightly different tropical forests. So from mountainous tropical forests in New Guinea, where you actually can get, uh, you know, ice, uh, frost in, in parts of the year through to, you know, the Amazon by the end of the Pleistocene. So we're talking about really variable habitats and really this this kind of observation um, myself and a colleague then then later went on to say, well, it's actually, it's also not just tropical forests. By the end of the Pleistocene, we see humans in high altitude settings. We see humans in deserts. Uh, we see humans north of the Arctic Circle. Um, and that actually what currently seems to define our species as, as unique is actually its ability to get into all of these extreme habitats, as well as, of course, coasts and, and savannas, and develop very specialised adaptations to these uh, on the population level. And so that overall, it, it's perhaps this diversity, our ability to deal with these very different conditions that would have been further um, contributed to by climate change during the Pleistocene, that, that actually is what, what might make us human rather than any particular environmental focus. It feels a more nuanced version of our past, this kind of thrillingly complex and diverse um, number of ecosystems that, that early people developed in and, and flourished in. Yes, definitely. And I, and I think what's important for me is, is you know, I, I think it's incredibly important that when we find new fossils, when we find new material culture, that we understand what environmental context it is, because it means something very different if we see a, a hominin species moving into a habitat it was already inhabiting versus if we see it doing something new. Um, and so I think 
you know, one one thing that's increasingly exciting is the importance of determining what the environments of these different hominin species were uh, at different points in time. Um, and can we compare them to each other and, and compare them to, to the same species uh, in different environments at the same time? And so that gives methodologies like stabilized tope analysis this kind of important platform and role to play uh, in our understanding of human history. And so I think that's very exciting um, as well and, and really calling for multidisciplinary approaches to, to archaeology. And as you mentioned earlier, it does seem a, a revision that is dependent on, in a way, Indigenous and, and Native um, science uh, in a mm. way that perhaps earlier European conceptions were not. So you, you were talking in regard to Sri Lanka about mm. you know, local scientists there who understood that these environments may well have been, and indeed there was evidence of, you know, early hominid d development. Uh, and it's not such a new notion in those places. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so in that case, that's that's Sri Lankan researchers, but also among in, indigenous communities living in tropical forests around the world. I mean, they've long maintained and that the, they've been living there for millennia. Um, and, you know, in some cases, they've they've actually recent kind of uh, strategies in the name of conservation have actually worked to move them out of these areas uh, and actually then leading to adverse um, situations, not just for them, but actually also for the for the environment that they'd actually been actively managing um, for a very long period of time. Um, and so I think, you know, that these these groups have obviously always known that tropical forests were key to to human culture, to human, you know, subsistence, because it's because they, they were critical to their lives and, and still are. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I think it's important that, that we include particularly, you know, this work we're doing in the tropics that, that we include indigenous perspectives. And often they've they've been making these arguments for a very long uh, time, but just haven't been listened to. Does it also mean that you know the the increase, for example, in land clearing and the loss of jungle biodiversity uh, from the Earth's surface suddenly becomes even more problematic in the sense that we're we're at risk not only of of erasing very significant biodiversity, but also erasing our own historical places. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the industrial logging and clearance of these forests was often done in this idea that that you needed to clear them to make the land more more productive, more profitable uh, to what we assume um, you know humans need as a part of our kind of uh, global economic system. But actually, it's very clear the more we look into the past, the more we see that it's it's not just our early ancestors that lived in tropical forests, but we have evidence, you know, of. Uh, of uh, food producers living in the forest, of even cities forming in forests that were also incredibly successful. Um, and I think, yeah, they're, they're home to a lot of our heritage. And this record also shows us that people can live with tropical forests, that we don't have to remove them to live in these parts of the world. Um, and that's perhaps something, especially given their biodiversity significance and their role in a series of Earth systems that we should perhaps start thinking about a little more um, because they are critical, not not just to our heritage, but also to, to life on the planet, really. They're so important to a number of Earth systems, um, to, to climate change, to the carbon cycle, um, to plant and animal biodiversity that we really need to, to try and protect them in any way we can, even while we're living with them. Thanks, Patrick, so much to chew over there. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's archaeological scientist Patrick Roberts, independent research group leader at the Max Planck Institute for Geoanthropology. Patrick's latest book, Jungle, How Tropical Forests Shape the World and Us, is published by Basic Books in New York. And we'll post links to his book as well as his article, Out of the Forest, on the Between the Lines homepage. Next on Between the Lines, Matthew Bourlet explains how the polar regions are changing from places of cooperation to places of competition and possibly conflict.
The North and South Poles have long been places where geopolitically, at least, there's been a spirit of low tension. But is this polar détente starting to fray at the edges and the era marked by cooperation and understanding about to come to an end? To discuss his new Chatham House report, The Militarisation of Russian Polar Politics, I'm joined by Matthew Buleg. Uh, he's a senior research fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House in London. Matthew, you warn that there's an increased risk that tensions could rise in not only the Arctic but the Antarctic as well. What's changed and why do you believe we're entering this new phase of increased great power rivalry? So it's a really good question. I think a lot has changed, specifically in the context of Russia's second invasion of Ukraine, um, which has definitely shown that Arctic and Antarctic management and cooperation as they were, as you rightly described as a place of low tension, is slowly starting to change. Not least because the environment is changing itself under the impact of climate change, which is calling for new regulations, new forms of governance, but also because of actions, actions like Russia's actions in, in, in with this reinvasion of Ukraine, which is showing that the Kremlin, of course, cannot be trusted and is completely overhauling the way we approach cooperation, security and governance in both poles. But also because the amount of actors in the region is changing, not least because of the impact of climate change as well, more fishing, more energy exploration, more science and technology issues to to uh, to deal with, which means more people are interested in dealing with poles, and not least China, of course, which is sort of the new outlier in this relationship. Matthew, your paper focuses really on Russia and the way that it's asserting itself in polar affairs, and you list what you think might be driving their interests. I mean, it, it's intriguing to me. You talk about the environment changing, and clearly, I guess, what's at stake in terms of resources and what resources you can access uh, at the poles must be changing as well. So if you take the Arctic, for instance, there is definitely this perception due to the impact of climate change, due to um, less ice coverage, there is now an ease of access towards the Arctic. That the fear of encirclement that the Russian leadership is feeding itself on is becoming true, that NATO is out there to get the Kremlin, as they would argue. And Russia being vindicated, of course, by, for instance, the expansion of the Atlantic Alliance to new countries like Finland and Sweden in the coming months. So there is this perception that more foreign players are here to try to get more clout, more access, more leverage into a region that the Kremlin fundamentally believe is theirs. Because if you look at it from a Russian point of view, it's interesting because if you turn the map from a Russian angle, then the Kremlin can argue that the rest of the, the Arctic that is not Russian is NATO territory, which is feeling and feeding the sense of encirclement. If you take the Antarctic, with Russia being an active member of the Antarctic Treaty System, the ATS, there, there is also this, this fear and this logic that should other countries seek to change governance to change the rules to the ATS, the Antarctic Treaty System, then it would play against Russia. Then they would be sort of a loser in this relationship. So out of sort of fear of missing out, you know, it's a big FOMO moment for Russia. They need to show their presence. They need to enact their presence through actions, through proclamations. And since Russia's soft power is not that soft and generally tends to be a bit sharper, if not harder than other countries, then the message goes alongside these lines and Russia's actions and proclamations tend to show a much harder sense, which I believe is a more securitized understanding of the region. Out of this fear of missing out, they want to be extremely present in Antarctic governance so that when the time is ripe, in a way, for more fishing, for more energy exploration, or if not complete exploration of the Antarctic continent, uh, when the time comes, they will be ready. Explain to me, I mean, it would be good if we can get into some of the, I suppose, the triggers for Russia in all of this. One must be the ice clause. If you could explain it for us, Matthew, and why, you know, how does Russia understand and use it, this ice clause? 
So 1992, Montego Bay, there was a signature of the UNCLOS, the law of the sea, basically the UN-regulated document that states what is right and what is not right to do at sea in international waters and how you extend basically your continental shelf, your exclusive economic zone and how you behave in all these elements, whether it is, you know, to avoid piracy or whether it is to regulate your exclusive economic zone. And on that document, which has a lot of articles, there is Article 234, which is called the ICE Clause. And the ICE Clause basically tells you that under certain circumstances, when there is enough ICE coverage for enough time of the year, you can claim a form of extension of your exclusive economic zone so that the body of water that would usually be international waters are understood as your territorial waters, not, of course, as a sort of, you know, maritime grab. You can't claim them as yours, but you can extend some rules and regulations along them to facilitate passage, to facilitate life at sea, to facilitate commerce and trade, for instance, all positive things. And then Russia, of course, did what they do best, which is use international law and exploit it at their advantage by claiming that, okay, there's one interpretation of the law, but there's also what I sort of make out of the law, which says that you give me the right to extend my exclusive economic zone, so I'm going to pretend it's true. So along the Northern Sea Route, which is this very long um, stretch of passage inside the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation, which does not belong to Russia technically, but is interpreted as Russian territory through the ice clause. Russia has established rules and regulations that are extremely complicated, extremely complex for passage, and to, to try to enhance their presence along this corridor, this Northern Sea Route, enhance their prestige as well through more science and exploration and enhance energy development. So where they have started drilling on the Yamal Peninsula, for instance, for LNG, for rare minerals and ore and so on. But with, under the impact of climate change, all of this has started to change because ice coverage has become more sparse. There has been more access possible at longer intervals during the year, and the ice clause barely applies anymore, depending on the circumstances. So a lot of countries of other Arctic nations, Canada, the United States, Norway, are slowly starting to, to, to claim, well, look, Moscow, we, we get your narrative, but you're not really interpreting the law the way it is, because your ice coverage is not that icy anymore. So you need to reconsider the way you interpret the law to give free passage because technically this, these are not your waters. So there is basically a war of narratives going on. It's, it's, it's very slow burning, but it is very much present. Of course, this is feeding the self-mythology in the Kremlin that NATO or American Americans or other nations are trying to get closer to Russia by securitizing as well their relationship with Russia, trying to increase their own footprint in the region to try to contest Russian narrative. This is Between the Lines on RN, this, and I'm Kylie Morris. My guest is Matthew Beleg, who's the Senior Research Fellow for Russia and the Russia and Eurasia Programme at Chatham House in London. Matthew, so just putting NATO and the US to one side, there's China as well, isn't there, for, for Moscow to angst over now that China's asserting that it's a near-Arctic power, you know, the, the policy that links its Belt and Road initiative with the idea of a polar Silk Road. I mean, this must be the stuff of nightmares for Russia. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is both a boon and a curse, to be honest, for the Kremlin. A boon because not a lot of countries actually want to invest in the Russian Arctic, except for China, because it's a, it's an easy, not so reliable partner, but at least an easy partner with less strings attached in terms of economic development, in terms of financing, in terms of access to infrastructure projects and so on. But it's also a nightmare because Russia needs to manage another big player in the region. And it is, you know, the Arctic and Antarctica as well are becoming an increasingly important space uh, and area of interest for China, for fishing, for energy exploration, for transit, of course, in the Arctic, but also uh, for potential mineral exploration in Antarctica, as well as fishing, of course, in, in, in both poles. So definitely a very complicated relationship. The, the sort of 
polar Silk Road or polar approach of China still in the Arctic is very dependent on Russian access because a lot of the Chinese strategy has to do with having a good standing with the Kremlin and being able to navigate the Arctic mostly from, from, from Russia. Because when you sit in Beijing and when you want to ship anything north, basically through the Bering Strait, your first point of contact beyond the United States and Alaska is Russia. And even if you want to reach the other side of the world through the Arctic, towards the European Arctic, you have to go through the long stretch of the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. So Moscow really is their entry point, their, their gateway, sorry, to the uh, to the Arctic. So they need to be in a good sort of good faith, good relationship with the Kremlin. The problem is that with Russia's second invasion of Ukraine, these things have changed. And this is giving a lot of food for thought in Beijing concerning their willingness to, to engage more with the Kremlin or to try to cooperate with other coastal nations in the Arctic, uh, mostly through science and exploration. So they need to find a balance between engaging with the Kremlin when Moscow is excessively toxic and finding sort of good standing with other Arctic nations. Let's turn our attention closer to Australia's area of area of interest, of course, the, the South Pole. I mean, do you see the same level of interest and potential for tension and conflict in the Antarctic as you've described in the Arctic? I think the Antarctic in general still remains a place where you have predictable governance, you have a solid system that has gone through a lot of uh, stress tests that have survived and endured despite the uh, the circumstances and despite the agreements between the, uh, the the party members and the uh, and the signatory members. So the level of tension is different. I think it'll be even more present as climate change continues to impact the continent, continues to impact the opening of potential resource exploration, more potential for fishing, more potential for mineral exploration at sea as well in the Southern Ocean. So it's more, you know, it's more the finer details of the law and their interpretation than a real space for geopolitics. However, geopolitics have a way of creeping through everything that happens in the world. And we will increasingly see the impact of great power competition in the Antarctic as more players become resource hungry and want to exploit what is uh, what is going to be more accessible and present on the continent and the Southern Ocean. Matthew, just finally, I should ask you, uh, we've, we've described the issues, the problems, the rising tensions. Is there anything that can be done? Can, can the West, for example, enact changes in its policies or its behaviour to help manage the situation? So the stronger we stand together amongst Western nations, among liberal democracies, in having an impeccable track record of governance, the better it will be for everyone. And it also applies to military security, for instance, because the Antarctic is also a place where dual-use, dual-capable systems that can be used for military intent are increasingly present. So we need to make sure we do regulate these things and we don't let countries like Russia or China exploit these cracks and conduct military intelligence when they should really be conducting science and exploration or fishing surveys, for instance. So it is really about governance itself and the spirit of governance that we need to make sure we are absolutely clear about. Matthew, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's Matthew Bouleg, Senior Research Fellow in the Russia and Eurasia Programme at Chatham House in London. And we'll post a link to his new report, The Militarization of Russian Polar Politics, on the Between the Lines homepage. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week with more from Between the Lines. Until then, bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.